0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Those who are good obtain favor from the Lord, but He condemns those who devise wicked schemes. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. An interesting text to start out with uh, after coming back from holidays. It's like, well, that's strange. He's refreshed and he's suggesting that there's a possibility that we could all be stupid. Um, The word of God reads us and there's great power in meditating in it and thinking on it and and, uh, deep diving into uh, the texts that challenge us. We're going to do a series for the rest of the summer exploring various Proverbs, we're going to look at the wisdom literature so that we can consider how, as the children of God, we can live with the wise guidance of God's Word and allow His wisdom to uh, do work in our hearts and our minds and work its way out of our hands. And to understand wisdom literature, to benefit from wisdom literature, um, we have to approach it uh, not like it's a series of ancient tweets that you just kind of go, oh, that's cool, and move on to the next one actually that we're supposed to mull them over and meditate on them a little bit like a steeped tea. Uh, not that I know a lot about tea because I'm a mega coffee guy, but every once in a while when I do have tea, uh, I like to make sure I can't see the bottom of the cup because I figure if I'm going to go to the trouble, uh, you know, and I know for some of you, this is abhorrent because you're, you're all up in the tea culture and you, you know, you dip the bag in twice because you don't want to spoil the heavenly taste of hot water. But for me... I got to make sure I taste something when I have tea. And, um, you know, Canada's late to the tea game anyways. Uh, you know, in, in the UK, they've been enjoying tea since like 1823-ish. Uh, in India, they've been enjoying tea since 700 BC. If Chinese, there's, you know, certain Chinese legend that dates tea in China back to 2737 BC where... Uh, as history has it, as the legend goes, a tea leaf floated into the pot of Emperor Shen Nong, and that's how tea was first discovered. So as Canadians, we're super late uh, to the tea game. Uh, but according to teanews.com, and it's on the internet, therefore it's true, um, Canadians drink around 264 cups of tea a year. Which I know you're thinking, that seems low, but you've got to send your numbers in if you're, send- if you're drinking more than that. Uh, but my point in all of this is saying that when the tea is steeped and that tea just infuses absolutely everything around it, this is how we have to approach the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, all scripture in fact. We have to allow it to steep into our hearts and our minds and to uh, work its way through us. This is to allow the scriptures to read us, to not stand over them with sort of a magisterial uh, level of reason, sort of a chronological intellectual snobbery to say this is an an enigma that I can sort of crack and then just move on to the next one without it phasing me or my life so as we uh, sort of consider this text this morning uh, we do want to consider how is it that uh, our motives are revealed by this how has Christ fulfilled this, how has Christ personified this how has Christ exemplified this faithfully live this out in a way that i never can so that i can trust the spirit to guide me um, through this so um, as we do i want to make a quick note for those of you who may be here exploring christian faith and the quick note is this that on the surface when you are going through wisdom literature it sounds quite a bit this text included it sounds quite a bit like if you are good then god will accept you or love you or receive you but in fact uh, considering the lens of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ and His cross, the true understanding of wisdom literature and all of Scripture is, and Christian faith is not that if I live a good life or if I live in a way that is coherent with God's wisdom, God will accept me, but rather I am seeking to live that way precisely because by His grace God has already accepted me. So if you're exploring Christian faith this morning, that is a distinction from Christian faith and the other world religions whereby the leader, the sage, um, the guru is, is saying, this is the path to salvation. Walk it. Essentially, earn your salvation. For us, exploring this wisdom literature, it is the reverse. By the grace of Christ alone, we are accepted. We are loved. And therefore, it is from a life of gratitude uh, that we live it. We're not seeking to gain anything. Uh, so with that, let's move on. When you look at this text here before you, there's three statements. There is very obvious uh, Hebrew poetic parallelism here. In parallelism, in poetry, you are intentionally putting phrases together that modify each other or they expound upon each other or they are or some way inviting us uh, to consider how they are contrasting each other. And so we're going to look at these three uh, parallel statements in the poetry um, to help us with the meditation. I'm going to ask three questions of this text and uh, just sort of like as a pastoral exercise to help you see how it is that we just ask questions of the text that we can uh, meditate on. The first question I want to ask is, how can we be wise and how do we have the capacity to be stupid? The second question is, what does it mean to be good? And how do I have the capacity to be wicked? And the last question is, if wickedness will not establish our lives, Then how can anyone have an immovable life? So those three statements, three questions to uh, provoke our thoughts around each of these statements. So first, let's start with the first statement, which comes from uh, verse one. To love correction is wise, to hate correction is stupid. Okay, how can I be wise and how do I have the capacity to be stupid? First of all, it might be tempting to say, we'll just move on to the next verse because I'm actually a very intelligent person. I've got street smarts, or I've got book smarts, or I've got letters after my name, or this is Kitchener-Waterloo, and I'm very successful, and I'm living a good life as a reasonable person, so just move on. We don't have to think about being stupid, because I'm not stupid. Uh, So here's, I think, the first place for us to pause. The English word stupid here um, does not actually mean that we're not intelligent. You can be highly, highly intelligent... And in the scriptural sense of that particular word in Hebrew, be stupid. The Hebrew word is ba'ar. And ba'ar means to be brutish, to be animalistic. Ba'ar is only used twice in Proverbs, once here. And the second place is in Proverbs 30, where where, uh, the text says, Surely I am too stupid to be human. I'm too brutish, too animalistic to be human. I lack understanding. I have not learned wisdom. I have no knowledge of the Holy One. So immediately what we're being confronted with is the idea that I can be highly educated and very smart and be um, a prominent figure in my, in my city and successful uh, by all modern definitions and still be very beast-like, driven by my impulses, driven by my appetites essentially living in a way that I'm sort of forsaking the ways of God. Essentially, I'm intelligent, but I'm beast boy. A couple years ago, Nigel and I were watching uh, this show called One Earth or something like that on Netflix. And there was a scene where there was this this predator, I think it was a lion or a cheetah or something like that, and it was chasing this herd of bison. And bison are these mammoth monster creatures. When Susan and, and Nigel and I were driving home from our holidays through the prairies, we saw this one bison, massive creatures. It's being chased. And this predator is chasing down the bison, trying to separate them, maybe get a weak one, maybe get a young one. And and the predator succeeds. And there's this tiny little bison running all by itself. And the predator is gaining on it. And as the pan, as the camera zooms out, behind the predator is this massive mama bison. And you're just like, oh. Predator's gonna get it now. And you know what that bison did? It trampled the smaller bison so that it could get away. Because then the. the I feel like you're pulling back. The, 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 the predator stopped and ate the little bison, and the big one got away. That's nature. There's nothing wrong with that. Might offend your moral sensibilities, but there's no morality in nature. The strong eat the weak every day. That's nature. And we don't say, oh, it's so wrong. It's not wrong. It's just how it is. It's beast-like. It's brutish. It's what you do to survive. So when the word of God comes and challenges the ways in which you and I may be brutish, we gotta stop and ask ourselves when I am threatened, what am I willing to trample? What relationships am I willing to trample? Which bridges am I willing to burn? How might I become brutish in a situation that invites me to respond in a way whereby as long as I'm the one that survives, that's the most important thing here. And so this aspect of being being brutish, being stupid, is an image that's that's inviting us to consider that if we lose the worship of God, We lose the wonder of God. That is the pathway to relating to our life like we are God. Like the beast. You see, the wise person wants what God wants. The wise person living a life of wonder wants what's right. The stupid person assumes that whatever it is that they want is right. That's what it is to be beast-like. It's to say, this is my impulse, this is my desire, this is what I want. How could it possibly be wrong if I want it? So in what ways do you and I have the capacity to be this way? In what ways do we have the capacity to exalt our desires above the ways in which the Word of God may challenge us? And there is nothing more offensive in 2022 than to say the things that I'm saying right now. To say, there are things you may want and think that could be wrong. That God would say are wrong. Because that's not the world we live in. That's not the world that we want. The world that we live in and the world that we want is a world of, well, this is my preference. That's your preference. And actually they're both okay and everything is absolutely fine all of the time. And nothing is right. Nothing is wrong. It's just a matter of preference. And if the moral majority decides that a particular thing is good, then therefore it is good. Because the majority putting their hands up and saying, yes, this is true, is then therefore um, constitutes truth. This is the world in which we live in. So it's very challenging then for us to come to the Word of God where God's Word as it reads us. It may provoke me, it may provoke you to say this the ways in which I think about this or the way that my desires in this situation or the way in which I am relating uh, at work or with my friends or with a loved one or with a spouse or in my home or with my children. It might be my natural instinct to respond and to act this way. It might be my natural desire to use my money this way. It might be so natural for me to relate to people of a particular culture this way. And we could go on and on and on with the possible implications of things that come very naturally to us. That God would actually say, you know, this is not loving and humble and wise. This is inconsistent with the way in which I have made you to be loving and humble and wise. And this is therefore beast-like. And therefore to just continue to live and to think and to do these things which come very naturally to you but are incongruent with me is, as the English translation gives, stupid. So this challenges us. But there's another way to be beast-like. And it's not like the bison that tramples the smaller bison. Another way to be potentially beast-like is to be a little bit like a cat. And there's probably cat lovers in here, so I tread softly, and I'm not trying to say anything negative about your cats, because of course they are gifts from heaven above. So I'm not... I'm going to suggest otherwise. But I will suggest that cats have a way of sort of being indifferent to your presence. The cat is like, if there's food, if there's water, if you're here or not here, I'm good. If you go on holidays for one day or one week or one month, I'm kind of fine. This is the life of the cat. Indifference to the presence. And this again is a way... As you read through the Proverbs, that we can be beast-like. Just this indifference to the presence of God, to the worship of God, to the liturgy of our lives, day in and day out. The way in which we go about our business, our pleasure, the way in which we relate to the city, relationships, the way in which we go about life. It was sort of like an indifference of his presence. And God is here, he's not here. This This is immaterial to me until calamity hits. And then when calamity hits, my prayer life will go to level nine. But until that happens... I sort of live with a sort of a cosmic indifference of God's presence. So these are possible ways for us to to be foolish, but to be wise. This is to love what God loves. And and even more so to be to marvel at the gospel, at Christ, the one who lived perfectly wise, perfectly loving. And look at him not as a crushing moral example that I can't live up to, which of course none of, none of us can, but to look at him and to be so encouraged that the love of Christ, the life demonstrated by Christ, Jesus is wisdom personified, and therefore the way in which Jesus related to his disciples, this is informative for the way for me to relate to my brothers and sisters. The way in which Jesus related to those outside of God's community, the way that Jesus ate and drank and had dinner with people who did not worship his Father, who did not love his Father, who were nothing like his Father. The way in which he extended the grace and the love to them, to love what he loves to desire to live in the way that He lives, these are informative ways for us to desire to be wise. It is a life of congruence. It is moving increasingly throughout the course of our life into congruence of who He is as those united to Christ, desiring more and more to emulate Him. Let's move on to the next verse. It says, A good person obtains favor from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise his wicked schemes. Which begs the question, what does it mean to be good? And how do I have the capacity to be wicked? The good people have favor the wicked get the condemnation i think the first question about good is by whose standard of good again this is how the bible provokes us to just sit with a a, a human humility and marvel at his greatness and his grandeur what does it mean to be good there's a provocative uh, line that i didn't understand for most of my life in luke 18 where the pharisees say to jesus good teacher and jesus says why do you call me good and i always wondered about that why would jesus say that of course jesus is good but what Jesus is actually saying to them is, only God is good. The divine standard of purity and, and beauty and wisdom and love. Only God is good. And if only God is good, and you don't believe I'm who I say I am, you don't believe I'm God, then don't call me good. So Jesus makes this divine distinction between human ideas about what is good and God's idea of this beautiful purity of what is good. A couple of years ago, I was... Uh, I was um, finishing a shed in our backyard and I was putting some wood on, on uh, the side of the shed, for some finishing pieces, and I had to cut a bunch of pieces. And so I measured each piece and cut each piece. Now I'm, I'm not a handy person at all, but one thing that I know is that you don't cut the first piece and then cut the rest off the last cut. I know that much. There's, there's gotta be a standard of measurement and say, okay, this is good. Cut it, but if I just continually cut off the last cut, well, this one, well, the last one was good, so this is probably good. Eventually, nothing is uniform. So when the scripture says a good person obtains favor from the Lord, it is this good, not 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 eyeball construction, not doing what is right in my own eyes. Yeah, that's good, and because I think this is good, God ought to be on my side. Because as we've already established, all the things that I want and desire are true and right. So God should probably be on board with this. See, it says the goodness is God's definition of good, which immediately uh, puts us into a very humbling uh, position because it provokes us to say, oh, wait a minute. If only the good person gets the favor, I'm not good. I mean, I'm good if I compare myself to other people just like you can do that. You can compare your life to mine in certain ways. Hang out with me for a weekend. And you're like, ah, I noticed, some, I noticed some places in Paul's life where this guy could really use some sanctification. This guy is not matured in these areas of his Christian faith. Would not be difficult for you. Spend three days with me. Would not be difficult for you to identify. Ah, so then, comparing yourself to me in those areas, you're like, I'm good. <sighs> and he's the pastor, and we know those guys are holy. I mean, we want to be we're trying to be, we're endeavoring to be. But what is good? So it provokes us to say, oh my goodness, if the standard is the loving, pure pure wisdom of God, none of us are good. This is a problem. But then what it pushes us into is the purity of God, the goodness of God, pushes us into the mercy of God, the one who is good, the one who came in Jesus Christ for us to provide everything that God requires, requires in His law, of wise and pure goodness. Jesus Christ, the good man who obtained favor by grace, then he gives you and I the favor united to him by grace. Even in the Old Testament, uh, at the point in which this was written, when there was no cross and resurrection and the grace of Jesus Christ, they did have the mercy and the saving grace of God, which is why you have the psalmist writing things like, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not away your Holy Spirit from me. The psalmist would say things like this because marveling at God's goodness, that which is good, he's like, oh boy, in comparison to you, I'm not. This is why the flow of our liturgical services on Sunday are the way that they are. God calls. He calls us to worship. We see him as he is. We worship him for all his grandeur. Oof. We think about us in comparison to him. Hmm. What would be a good response to this? Confession. Confession. From the confession, what comes after the confession? The communing with the Word and the Spirit. May He do renewal in us. What comes after the renewal? What comes after the what what comes after the communing with us? The communion, and what comes after the communion? Commission, shaped by the very grace of the Gospel, the goodness of God, the good person that obtains the favor of the Lord provokes us to see that we're very much in need of the one who is good. And then that provokes our desire to live. The next phrase goes on to say that the wicked receive his condemnation. And again, it's tempting to look at that and say, the wicked devising evil schemes. Move on, preacher. No need to expound upon this. I have no evil lair. Why must we speak of these things? No, but we do have to think about it, because it's not about having an evil lair. Scheming is, 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 is not that. A scheme is a system. A scheme is a plan. A scheme is an intentional liturgy, if you will. It's just the way that you do it. It's the scheme. It's approaching things a certain way. Even if you're a person who's like, yes, but I'm a free spirit, and I have no plans. That is also a plan. That is also a scheme. It's got interesting byproducts, but that's still a scheme. And so because this is true, because the scheme is the... The approach, the life approach, the, the, the liturgy of your the day in and day out, week in and week out of how you do life, the ultimate wicked scheme, the one that God will ultimately condemn, has been around since Genesis three. If you deny God, if you dethrone God, if you set up your life and relate to everything like you are God, that scheme is what God condemns. If think, think about Proverbs 12 in relation to the original sin. The original sin in Genesis 3 was looking at something that God said was not good and responding by saying, hold up, I'll decide what's good. And they saw the fruit that it was good for food. And she took it and ate it and gave it to her husband standing right next to her and he ate with her. God says it's not good. They're like, mm, I think it is. God says this will lead to death. Mm. Pretty sure this will lead me to a fulfilling life. Stupid. Brutish. Driven by the impulse. I want it. How could it be wrong? After all, I'm king. And so the brutish person is the one that sets ways up. The word of God comes along. We're reading through the scriptures. The word of God says, this is good. This is not. This is wicked. This is right. This is wrong. But as, as a modern... As a modern person, we look at it as a... Hum, hum, hum. Ah, this old book. It probably needs some updating. So therefore, I will read it with my modern wisdom, my modern lens, and I'll decide the parts that are now irrelevant. But you see, my friends, the scriptures are not old. They're eternal. And there's a difference. God's wisdom and the way in which he has created us as humans to flourish... It's not an old idea. It's an eternal idea. It is what he will restore in the end when Christ returns to restore all things. What will happen in the end is what God had intended in the beginning. And therefore, to live into congruence with that is wise because that is the teleology of our existence. And to live in incongruence with where this is all headed is, as the English translation says, stupid. Because we are out of sync with the one who has created us to flourish in a new humanity, which is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And so, it says that a good person obtains favor from the Lord. And the good news of the gospel, of course, is Jesus was the only one good by God's standard. But after his perfect life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection, we are united to him. Which means we have the indwelling power of the Spirit. Which means this text is not just a prescription for you. It is a description of the real you. So therefore, I'm not just sending you out here with a prescription going, hey, do you see that? You see the ways in which you may fail at that? Do better. Have a nice day. No, 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 no. My friends, this is, if you are united to Christ and you uh, wonder at his grace and you are a child of God, this is a prescription for us, a prescription for how to live. And it is a description of the true us. Indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, increasingly over the course of our lives, the guilt of our sin is already gone and the grip of our sin is lessening. And therefore we lose our appetite for the things that at once our brutish beast-like appetites longed for over time. We lose our appetites for these things as the Spirit does His, His renewing work. Which leads us to the last thing. And maybe before I get there, maybe I should address this. At this point in the sermon, some of you may be thinking, you know, this is really great, but I just really love it if you would just go point one, two, three, four, five and just write some things down. Like, just give me some specifics. Here's why I can't do that. There are 200 people in here and 200 different applications. For this, you have to meditate on it. This is the point of wisdom literature. It's not that I give you the modern-day Kitchener-Waterloo KW Redeemer Torah and I go... And in order for us to be wise people... Next slide, please. Here's the approved books. Don't let your kids read those ones. These are the next Netflix series that the elders and I have decided... are appropriate for you to be watching. And these Netflix series are the ones that will infantilize you. Some of you in here are very upset... at the way in which I'm going to teach through the Proverbs this summer... because you're like, no. you got to just tell me the thing. But that's not how wisdom literature works. That's how you infantilize your church. Those of you who've raised adult children... You know this because you can't just say, look, these are the, this is the thing because then your kids grow and all of a sudden they go, actually, i got a question about that. And you're like, uh, nuance. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like wisdom, the wisdom literature of the Proverbs provokes us to look at the gospel, look at the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, God incarnate, like a prism that is cascading a multiplicity of color through it so that we can see the glorious wisdom of God and then apply it right here, right now, on Monday for the situation you are dealing with so that you can ask yourself these questions about your very life. Oh God, which ways can I be wise and help me to forsake the ways in which I am brutish? Last thing. So if nobody's life is established by wickedness and all of us struggle at some point, some way with wickedness, how can I have an immovable life? We're given two more contrasts in this final, uh, contrasting images in this final verse. And so I'll close with this. The first, if you look at the phrasing, you've got the phrase not established contrasted with never moved. And all throughout the scripture, trees are often used as metaphors for stability. So you see the root of the righteous is not moved. So it provokes us to think of what we are have rooted our very lives in. I mean, what does the liturgy of your day or your week look like? What are you rooted in? Where is the, what is the anchoring force? What does that look like? So for us as believers, it's at some point in the day, prayer, meditation, returning to his scripture. Not because it's, not because it's simply something that we're like, okay, I've got to just carve some time out to read. I need this to read me and bring renewal and refreshing and joy is the very power of the Word of God which is not static but is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between the soul and the marrow I'm sorry, the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow as the Hebrew writer says and so as Christians we are not immune from hardship but what the wisdom literature gives us what God's Word gives us is a way of not inviting hardship we, we cannot invite hardship by giving into animalistic impulses, desires, just relating to life and relationships with a way that is not humble, loving, or wise. We're not immune from hardship, but we can surely not invite it. But the second thing is, some of us have hardship that we didn't ask for. Some of us are going through hardship right now that we had nothing to do with. It was brought upon us by the decisions of others. And the Word of God here strengthens us through those hardships. The wisdom literature enables you and I to flourish so that I'm not inviting hardship from the wayward impulses inside me, and I'm not actually living as a victim of the hardship of the brokenness of the world outside. It is an anchoring force. The gospel frees me from the instability of living with this fragile joy that is precariously tethered to ever shifting circumstance. The root of the righteous will never be moved. Jesus was righteous by nature. United to him, you and I are declared righteous by grace. And so the promise of this text is that our life is already established eternally. May we steepen that. May God's grace carry us through everything that's going on with us right now temporarily. And may we live into our new humanity. Put off the old humanity. Put on the new humanity in Christ. So that when God's word calls us and says live like this. Our hearts, blown away by his grace, respond by saying, I want this. The roots of the righteous will never be moved. Let's pray.